0: Does anybody remember singing in the children's choir when they were little? I have very vivid memories. And and when you're a kid and you're singing in the choir, you sing things that you don't understand. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Do you remember that one? Our, our choir director said, say in eggshells, see si Deo. It ruined the song for me. I can't sing it without thinking of eggshells. There was another song which, which I always loved. We sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but the 1739 version. And there was... A line in the second verse. I want you to see it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. When I was a kid, I understood that about as well as I understood the expression, offspring of the virgin's womb. (laughs) But as I've grown up a bit, and, and as I've become a pastor... Sentiments like this one are the things that I work at understanding. And what I want to do this morning is unfold to you the meaning of that. That phrase, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It's a statement of faith about the identity of the one who's born at Christmas. And not everybody who comes together in a room like this has the same faith. But what I want is for you to understand clearly what Christians believe about who God is, so that you have the capacity to make a good decision about how you relate to this story of Christmas. That phrase is wrapped up in one of the names that Jesus receives at at the Christmas story, the phrase, the title, Son of God. And this season, this year, we're focusing on who we follow. We're listening to the way the story of Christmas depicts the identity of Jesus. And and we're we're trying to understand who Jesus is practically so that we have a much higher likelihood of following him. When you know who your leader is, then you know how to walk behind him. And that's what we're aiming at this morning. And and this title, Son of God, is what we're going to try to understand. And so we're going to start with Luke's version of the Christmas story, the angel's words to Mary. These may be very familiar to you. You maybe have heard these before, but try to listen again. There are some stunning claims about the child who will be born to Mary. So let's open our minds and our hearts, and let's listen to the Christmas story as it's presented in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 1, verse 26, here's what we read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, already there are four indications that this story is going to be about someone extraordinary. They're easy to miss. First, the news is brought by Gabriel, a heavenly messenger. God is behind this message. Secondly, Nazareth, this village where it's going to happen, we might not know this as well as they did, but that's an out-of-the-way place where the prophets said you should expect the servant, the suffering servant of God to arrive. Thirdly, Mary is a virgin. The prophet Isaiah said that when the virgin conceives and bears a child, that's a sign that Messiah is coming. And then fourthly, Joseph is of the line of David. And these folks would have known that God had promised to establish his kingdom through this line. Let's see what Gabriel says next to Mary, verse 28. And... And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now Mary has no idea at all What's going on here? Because for her, this is an exceptional and extraordinary experience. It's not something that she had anticipated, and it's not something that was ordinary even in those days. She's stunned, and she's shocked. And we are familiar enough with the story that it's easy to lose the wonder and mystery of it, but imagine a heavenly messenger interrupts the night and and brings you this kind of message. She was stunned. The prophet... Uh, is going to come up here in what comes next from the angel. Look at verse 32. Excuse me, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Vito talked about the meaning of the name Jesus. Some of you were here for that. And and he taught us that that means God saves. The child will be the one who is God in person to save us. Uh, Let's keep reading verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The prophet who had promised that it would be through the line of David that the Messiah would come with Samuel. And it was explicitly stated that David's lineage would be the one that led to the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue and deliver. Here, this word is pointing back to generations before, One day, an anointed ruler who would bear the power and presence and authority of God in person would come, not just another king, but God in person, God with us, the true king, and that's what's wrapped up in that name there, the Son of the Most High. This means that Mary's child is going to be the Godhead veiled in flesh, made visible, the incarnate deity, who will one day be universally hailed as the one supreme God over all. Now, Mary has no idea of what the angel is talking about. She stopped listening after she heard the word baby. And we know this because of how she responds. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. The birth is going to come about through a miracle. And there's no explanation. It's just named. It's going to be something that God does beyond understanding. And then, in order to clarify for Mary the identity of the child who will be born, the angel says it again, but in a more concise way, the Son of God. That title is our subject today. And now listen. If we... Follow Jesus. This is who we follow. Now, I say if because you, every one of you, at every moment, is always in the position of deciding whether you will follow Jesus or walk a different way in life. And Jesus is the gracious Lord who comes to each of us personally. And he bids us to follow him because he loves us. And it's hard sometimes to see this. Sometimes it feels like religious people represent a God who just wants to judge and change you. Jesus comes to you as you are, and he wants you to be his companion. And if you follow, this is who you follow, the Son of God. Let's spend some time on this and slow down to understand what this title actually means. Uh, We're going to start with the most basic definition. Son of God is a relational term. And that makes sense, obviously, because it has the word son in it. Uh, It captures something about the connection between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Something about the relationship that those two have. Now, son is not used in this title literally. Not like I would call myself the son of Peter, who is my father. Rather, it's used figuratively and it points out something unique about the bond that exists between an ideal father and an ideal son. Every one of us will have to imagine this because none of us has experienced this in life. But if you can imagine for a moment what it would be like between a perfect father and a perfect son, what do you think of? You think of trust. You think of love. You you think of... Uh, an overlap of the will and purpose. These two are together and united. Son of God, first of all, points to relationship. Now, this term... It's prone to misunderstanding because this is not the only place that it was used in antiquity. If any of you studied philosophy in college or if you looked into Greek mythology, you know that by the time that the New Testament was written, that title, Son of God, was actually used quite liberally all around in the culture, Uh, not only outside of but also inside of the Bible. And it's important to understand this to grasp what's being said about Jesus. If you were a careful reader of the Old Testament, you'll notice that there are several ways in which the title is used. Angels are sometimes called sons of God in the Old Testament. Sometimes the king is anointed. You can read through Psalms and refer to son of God. Sometimes it's the people of Israel altogether. The prophet Hosea refers to God's people altogether as son. If you go outside of the Bible, you'll see the same variety in use. You know that the pharaohs who ruled in Egypt were regarded as sons of God. That's why they had such magnificent tombs they were buried in. It was the same in Babylon, it was the same in Assyria, and in Greek mythology, if there was a a magician or someone who worked wonders even in Jesus' day, they would be called the Son of God. David Blaine, he would have been called Son of God. Now, the reason to clarify this is that it would be a mistake when we come to the Christmas story if we thought the title was used of Jesus in the same way it had been generally used of others. That's actually not the case at all. Now, listen, before I go on, if you don't believe that, okay, you're free to do that. But you must know what you are not believing in. And I pause here because my motive beneath unfolding all of these words for for you as, as a gathering is that you would believe. For those of you who believe already that your belief would run deeper than it had. For those of you who don't believe, I want you to believe And if you believe Son of God is the way to refer to Jesus, what you're actually believing is categorically different than what anyone else who had used that term before in culture had asserted when they applied it to angels or people or individuals or magicians. It's completely different when it's used in the Christmas story because, listen now, Son of God for Jesus does not just denote a special relationship to God. It points to a unique relationship. And I use that term literally. You know the difference between special on the one hand and unique. Special, there's lots of people who have special relationships with God. Unique means one and only one. And when this term is used of Jesus, it's meant to point that his relationship with God is altogether different from every other relationship with God. And that's clear initially in the fact that Jesus is never called a son of God, but only ever called the son of God never one among many, always the one and only. And in his case, the relationship to the Father indicates a unique kind of unity. Uh, he would grow up and have followers who would ask to see God the Father, and he would say to them, you've been with me, this all, the, you've been with me all this time, and still you, haven't, you don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Do some of you know that text? To say that Jesus is the Son of God, and this is where the uh, heart of it is, is to say that he is, Jesus is, God's authority, God's power, and God's majesty in person. Now listen carefully, and if you're a note taker, I see you. Get this down. You ready? Listen. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is not to say that he has authority like God does. It is to say that he is God's authority with us. To say that he's the son of God is not to say that he has power in the same way that God has power. It is to say that he is God's power. To say he is the son of God is to say not that he has some majesty like God does, but that he is actually God's majesty with us right here. This was absolutely impossible to see when he was born because he was a baby. He was a real baby, vulnerable. He needed milk from his mother to live That's how he came, but when he grew up, it became clear that there was someone special here, and especially the disciples saw it, and what they were able to see is what it meant to call him son of God, and I'm going to show that to you this morning through three scenes, each of which demonstrates a part of what it means to call him the son of God, and we're going to start with this. Son of God means that Jesus is God's authority. He is God's authority. When Jesus first started to teach, he gathered disciples around him. He was in Capernaum, right by the Sea of Galilee. He taught, he spoke with a unique kind of authority, and people were attracted to him. He healed, he had power over illnesses, that also drew crowds. He moved around that area, and lots of people started to follow him. He came back one day to Capernaum, right by the sea, to a home of one of his followers, and he began to teach, and soon the house filled up. They opened up the doors, and now so many came that they were spilling out onto the sidewalks, and more and more people came, and then there was a group that showed up with a paralyzed man. They had built a makeshift sort of stretcher, and they carried him in. Because they wanted him to be close to Jesus because they knew he had something special. Do some of you know this story? They wanted to get to Jesus so bad that one of them climbed up on the roof of the house and he began to take apart the roof. He moved the thatch, made an opening big enough for the friend, the four of them carried him up onto the top and began to lower him down through this hole in the roof. Picture this. Jesus is teaching with everybody around him. People start looking up. He pauses and sees this guy coming down and then he's lowered right there in front of Jesus and his friends move in and they're there with him and Jesus looks and now everybody's looking to see what is Jesus going to do in this moment. What's he going to say? Jesus sees the earnestness of his friends, and listen to me now, what he sees is their faith. And faith means that they believe the best thing to do with a problem like this is to get it as close to Jesus as they can. This is an aside from the story. You should bring every trouble as close to Jesus as you can. Do you have any troubles? Now, what is Jesus going to say? He looks at the man, he looks at the crowds, and there's religious leaders there, there too, and he says to the man, he looks at him and he says, son, he says, son, <laughs> was that, <laughs> son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's unexpected, because he look, it looks to everyone like his biggest problem is the Paralysis. But what Jesus is saying in that moment is, no, there's a bigger problem here. It's that his sins, and what Christians mean by that, it's not a list of a few things that everybody else gets wrong that we judge them about. God help us when we represent it like that. It means those things in life that plague us and keep us away from divine nearness. He says, your sins are forgiven because Jesus knows that's the thing that's the most important. People are shocked not only because he said that, because it doesn't seem what he needs. More importantly... Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And that's exactly what the religious leaders start to think. How can he say this? That's not something that a man can do. Jesus looks at the religious leaders. He knows they're thinking this. And so after pronouncing forgiveness, he says to them, why, why are you asking the questions that you ask in your hearts? Now they're shocked because they know he can see right into their souls And then he asks, which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he turns to the man he's just forgiven and he says, stand up and walk. He does. He stands up in front of everybody and he begins to walk. And and this is what happens. The folks are utterly amazed. And this is Mark 2.12. This is what they say. We have never seen anything like this. And it's true. They've never seen anything like it because they've never met anyone like Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God right there with them. And that means he is God's authority in person. And only God can forgive sins. God is the one who gave the law. Maybe you know the story of Moses going up on the mountain and receiving those stone tablets. You know that the Bible says that Jesus was in the beginning with God and nothing that exists came into being without Jesus. And that means that the finger that wrote the law on the stone was the finger of Jesus, the same hand that now reaches out and touches that paralyzed man, and says, walk. He is the authority of God in person. If you follow Jesus, you follow God's authority, and that means the authority to forgive the sins of that man and the sins of every person in this room and your sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive you. He comes to liberate us, With the power of God Almighty, only God can do it. Jesus came to do that. No one else has that authority, but Jesus does. No priest, no religious figure, no well-meaning person at your church, God alone, Jesus comes with God's grace in person. That's the first thing that we see. Now, those disciples stuck around. They saw other things about who he was. You want to see a second scene? Yes or no? All right, I needed a little help there. (laughs) After that miraculous moment, they continue to travel together, and then we're going to see a second scene which shows us that Son of God means Jesus is God's power. Traveling around that Sea of Galilee, and really it's a big lake. Has anyone visited there? Some of us are going to go soon. It's a lake where fishermen make their living, and it's big enough to have storms that come up. It's one evening after another session of teaching when he turns to the disciples after the crowds are being sent away and as the sun is going down and he says, guys, it's going to be time for us to travel again. Get a boat ready. We're going across. I don't know if you've ever been out on the open water in a boat. I grew up sailing with my parents. It's fun, but it can be dangerous. As the sun sets and they begin to move out, the temperature changes, and the wind comes up. And now, as they're out there in the middle, far from both uh, both coasts, the waves start to rise, and the boat begins to go up and down, and up and down. The waves now start to crash into the boat, and this whole time, Jesus is asleep in the stern, but the disciples are terrified, and they fear for their lives. Now, that's very easy for me to say up here on this stage. But, but listen now, have you ever been afraid for your life? Has anyone here, and, and raise your hand for a minute, been in a boat when you're afraid for your life? It's happened twice in my life. It is absolutely awful. You don't ever want to be in a position like that. But they're out there in this boat because they follow Jesus out onto the water. Do you know what it's like to be in a storm in life, terrified? Now, I don't mean a literal one, but I mean figuratively. I know that some of you are here because life has handed you some storms. Well, there are the disciples, and what they think is, this guy, Jesus, the sleeping one, must not care about us. And so they start to wake him up, and that's what they say. Don't you care that we are perishing? Let me ask this. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever had it so hard that you've wondered, does Jesus really care about me at all? This is one of those questions that's hard to answer with a, a resounding amen in church. But maybe you felt like that. Maybe, maybe because you've lost someone that you love, or, or because uh, you can't steer your children in the direction of of well-being like you wish you could. Or, Or you have this physical ailment that nags you. Or you don't get along like you know you ought to. A storm like that. Do you know what that's like? Jesus wakes up. The boat is tossed to and fro. He speaks to the wind and he rebukes it. And then he says to the sea, peace, be still, and immediately there is a dead calm the disciples in their shocked awe they say who then is this this is mark 4:41 that even the wind and the sea obey him the answer is that he's the son of god that's who he is that's why he can speak to the wind and it dies. That's why he can tell the ocean to be calm and it is. It's because he is God's power with them in person right there in the boat. He has more power than anything else in all of creation because Jesus is the word of God who was in the beginning with God and who in the beginning was God and through whom nothing in all of creation came into being apart from him. This is how the gospel of John starts. So that he has the power to say to the wind stop and it 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 heals like a well-trained dog. Jesus was the one who brought the whole world into being with his word, and that means he has power over every threatening and menacing and awful problem that any disciple will ever face. Here, let this, let this thought now come into your mind. What's the storm for you right now? Is it a family thing? Is it something at work? Is it... Uh, Is it some problem with friends? Whatever it is, Son of God means that Jesus is powerful enough to own that problem completely with his word to shut it down. Here, don't be abstract right now. Be concrete. Whatever the trouble is, the storm in your life, this moment right now where we're learning that Jesus is called the Son of God and what it means is a moment for you to consider this possibility, that the claim is that Jesus has more power than that thing. And if you would get into the boat with him, you'd see it. Not not until after the storm raged for a while. Can we agree on that? But you would see it. That's what God wants for you to see, that he is God's authority in person, that he is God's power in person. Third thing, one more scene. To call Jesus Son of God is to claim that he is the majesty. Jesus is God's majesty in person. And majesty, that's the grandest word I could think of. And the reason to put such a big word to it is this last scene is going to show us how Jesus confronts the worst thing in all of creation, which is death. And and before I show you this scene, I want to say that I know a lot of you in this room are plagued right now, either because death is behind you or not too far away for you or someone you love. To call Jesus Son of God is to say that he has enough majesty even to conquer that tyrant, death. He's by the sea again with his friends. After this storm, they get out of the boat and the crowds gather immediately. And before long, they're pressing upon him, and then one man, he's the head of the synagogue, comes pressing through the crowd, and his face is desperate, and he says, teacher, it's my daughter, and you didn't even have to know what he was going to say, just judging by his expression. She's ill, and if you don't get here soon, she's going to die, and nobody knows what that feels like, unless they've had to face the mortality of their child, as some of you have had to. Jesus says, I'll come with you. And so they walk side by side toward the crowd, and then they begin to move into it, but so many people are there as they move through the center of the city that he's delayed and and more and more people are gathering there's a woman who is desperate in need of help and Jesus helps her and the man is anxious but he's patient because he knows this guy can help my daughter they get through the crowd onto the other side he heals the woman but before they start to make it toward this man's house someone comes from his home and you can see on his expression it's bad news it's too late he says she's gone She was 12. The hardest thing I've seen, and I've seen a lot, is when parents have to bury their children. Or when a loved one who's been married and and has been with someone for a long time has to let that person go. It's very hard. But I want you to hear me say this now. The majesty of Jesus, who is the Son of God, means that in the end, he wins out over every enemy, including the enemy of death. And for many of us, that will not change the fact that we have to go through the death of loved ones for now. But death isn't the end. We're in between the time when Jesus' majesty became plain after he conquered death, which he did after he was crucified, and he rose to be beside the father uh, whose son he is. And there'll be a day down the road when he returns. But between now and then, for many of us, it will be like it was in that moment for that man who heard, your your daughter's gone. Jesus looked at him and he said this, listen to this. He said, don't be afraid, only believe. I, I say this now in Jesus' name to those of you who have lost an uncle. Or a husband. Don't be afraid. Only believe. What that man didn't know then is that Jesus was gonna walk him from that misery to his daughter and bring her back to life. And if you've lost someone already, you have to walk from right now to that end when Jesus returns. But don't be afraid, only believe. He is, the son of God is God's majesty in person and he is stronger than death, he is. And you'll see it someday, have faith for now. Jesus walks with the man back to his house. Everybody is weeping and wailing as they should when they get there, he walks into the house. He sends everybody out except for three of his disciples and the girl's mother and father and he gets down on his knee and he takes the girl her her lifeless hand in his, and he says, little girl, get up. Like a father who goes in in the morning to wake his daughter who's asleep, and she immediately gets up. Immediately. And they're amazed. They can't even believe what they're experiencing. They've never seen anything like this. In fact, it says this, at this, they were overcome with amazement. Okay? They were not just amazed. They were overcome with amazement. And this claim that Christians believe when we call Jesus the Son of God is that his majesty is so amazing, if we could grasp it, it would overcome us. It's beyond our imagination even to hold on to it for a little bit because it says the best thing that you could hope for isn't enough. That your loved one will be restored and made whole again and you could be with them as God made you to be forever. That is too small a thing to hope for because what you will experience when he returns and conquers death is even beyond that. And right now, you should open your heart to that. God is the God of life. The one who breathed his breath into the man that he made in his image at the beginning and brought that first person, Adam, to life. That breath behind Jesus' command, little girl, get up, is the same breath. It's the breath of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the majesty of God in person. This is who we follow if we follow Jesus, the Son of God. The authority of God, the power of God, and the majesty of God. Have you got it? All right, how do we do it? How do we follow him? I'm just going to say one word here and let Paul finish the sermon off for us. If we follow Jesus, listen now it means that we use every bit of authority that we have, every bit of power that we have. And you have power, every one of you does. And whatever majesty could truly be ascribed to us. And I'm gonna tell you, God made you majestic, every one of you. But if we follow Jesus, it means we have to use all three of those in the same way that he did. And this is what makes him profoundly unique. Instead of grasping and, and, and claiming and dominating, what Jesus does is he humbles himself for others, even his enemies. And so here, we're gonna close with these words. If you are following Jesus, then you must let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is a Christmas story, friends. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, Son of God. We thank you that in Him, you, the Godhead, chose to become one who was with us, veiled in flesh, incarnate deity. We praise you that you were pleased as man to dwell with us, Jesus our Emmanuel. We ask now that our hearts would be open to receive you and your authority and your power and your majesty. And then we ask that we would imitate your humility in the way that we use our power and our authority and our majesty. We love you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.